And at this time on a Friday morning, we'd like to go to the United States, find out what is happening there beyond the headlines, as we'd like to do it here. And uh, on, well, every other week, we talk to Celeste Katz-Marston in the beautiful city of Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, Celeste, a very good morning. Welcome back to the program. Good morning. Now, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Celeste, it's been rather cold in your neck of the woods. It has. We have had uh, some nor'easter activity, um, you know, getting a bunch of snow, and it has been super, super cold, so uh, maybe sort of a moderate silver lining to trying to stay inside and stay away from the uh, COVID-19. You know, in Australia, if you want to go to the snow, you've got to go to the snow. The snow does not come to you. How do you even function when it is, you know, piled up metres high in the street? Uh, you get out and shovel it as best as you can, and you hope that the uh, the plows come by regularly, which they generally seem to do. You know, I think we've talked about it a little bit, but uh, they know how to deal with snow up here in New England. And uh, having lived through some situations, uh, particularly in New York City, which is should be used to snow, but uh, has a lot of complications and a lot more people, uh, you know, this is relatively under control. But uh, we do we do get a wall now. On that. Mm. When does the excitement wear off, do you reckon, for snow? Is it like an uh, hour into usually, it or a day into it or when? About 10 minutes into mm. shoveling it, yeah, usually. I'm sure. I mean, like shoveling the driveway or shoveling the sidewalk? Or, I mean, what do you do? Like, how does it actually work? Do you get out, every, does everyone get out there and do it or do you have to wait till it stops snowing? Well, you have a couple of choices. One, you can choose not to deal with it and wait till it stops snowing and then deal with it all at once. Or you can you could do sort of a, a step-by-step approach where you go out maybe halfway, depending on how hard it's snowing, and you sort of get a start. Or, you know, you put out salt to help melt it so it doesn't freeze up into a blanket of ice that's impossible to get off until spring comes. So mm. everybody has their own way of going about it. Mm. Meanwhile, things are, well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know whether Joe Biden has hit the ground running, but he's certainly, he's 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 worked. This is what I was thinking. Like, there's never been, I mean, whether he turns out to be a good president or not, I don't know. It's, it's way too early to tell. But, you know, he was 30 years in the Senate. He was eight years in the White House as vice president. There was never going to be anybody better prepared, perhaps, to be president he looks like a president already, don't you think? I mean, how is it looking from your side of the desk? Well, relatively speaking, sort of as an American and as a reporter who's covered a lot of politics, it's looking relatively smooth. I think that some people might even say it looks a little boring after the last four years of what we had become accustomed to in the White House. You know, we don't have sort of... Um, the ranting going on. We don't have the uh, the volley of attacks against the media. We don't have the incessant tweeting, um, you know, sort of at, at targeted subjects and so on. So it looks sort of traditional and a little quiet compared to what we got used to again over the last four years. But what we got used to over the last four years wasn't exactly normal. So it's kind of a it's kind of a mind bender to to go back to uh, a more traditional type of presidency, although admittedly during a very untraditional time where we have a pandemic still very much in force, where uh, just a few weeks ago we had a, an armed insurrection at the U.S. Capitol 
Uh, so still weird times, but, you know, all things considered, it has been pretty stable. Hmm. Because one of, the, one of the things, and whether it goes back to that night at the correspondence dinner where Barack Obama was poking fun, gentle though it may be, at Donald Trump, and we know that the president or the former president are very thin-skinned, um, that as soon as Trump got into office, President Trump got into office, he basically went about reversing everything that uh, President Obama had done. And now it looks like it's sort of going back to the way that it was, that President Biden is kind of reversing a whole lot of stuff that President Trump did. Yeah, I think that's one thing that people had expected, something Biden had said he was going to do, had campaigned on to say that, you know, the nation, in his opinion, uh, and hopefully at the time in the opinion of his supporters uh, for election, um, had just sort of gone off track, had gone the wrong way, had gone to extremes in a lot of things. So, yeah, you're definitely seeing President Biden now trying to do sort of a a course correction uh, in that regard. Now, one of those things is to do with refugees into the United States. We know that, um, well, President Trump, because whether he believed it or not, I don't know, but certainly his supporters uh, wanted him to uh, reduce the number of uh, migrants to the United States and number of refugees in particular, um, and that's what he went about doing. But President Biden is now, well, he's kind of reversed that. What is he going to do? And where are these refugees going to come from? And how's it going to work in an era of COVID? Yeah, those are those are all interesting questions. So basically what uh, President then President Trump had done is uh, specific to refugees, not just regular general immigration. Uh, he had set a cap on refugee admissions of about 15,000, which is very low, the lowest since uh, 1980 in this country. And uh, Biden now is talking about moving that up to 125,000 wow. annually. Uh, although that that wouldn't start until later this year, there's a lot of things that need to happen. We are in a pandemic, um, and just a lot of uh, uh, a lot of paperwork essentially that needs to be done to change that. But obviously, a very dramatic difference, and really signaling also uh, to the rest of the world that um, the United States is no longer um, positioned as kind of isolationist, shutting people out, uh, and so on. Um, people seeking uh, asylum, people coming from countries where they're in a dangerous political situation or where crime is really high, where they're under threat. So America kind of opening its doors a little bit, although not opening the floodgates in the sense that this will take some time to institute. Look, I don't know this answer, and maybe you don't either, but do we know what it was like or that what the numbers were during the Obama and Bush and Clinton administrations? I mean, was it up to 125,000? Was it more or was it less? I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, during uh, Obama's presidency, during the Obama administration, um, there were some increases. Uh, for example, in uh, 2016, uh, the ceiling was 85,000. Uh, that went up to 110,000 in 2017 during the uh, the Syria um, unrest. So there are usually adjustments. That's not uncommon. But, you know, you also have different waves of people seeking asylum, people who are refugees coming from different parts of the country, whether it was the former Soviet Union or people um, more recently, for example, coming from the Middle East or coming from Latin America. So do we know where these new refugees will be coming from? 
Well, I mean, I think that, you know, that depends on what's uh, what's going on. For example, uh, mm. you know, we have a situation right now in uh, Myanmar, exactly. uh, former Burma. So, you know, it, it depends really on sort of what is going on globally and where people are seeking to escape from unrest in their in their home country. This is something also that the president just he decides himself. I mean, obviously, in consultation with his advisors, he doesn't have to get permission from the Congress. He just says, radio, this is what the number is. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, a lot of these things are sort of interwoven. The cap uh, specifically has to be approved by the president. But, you know, there are there are a lot of interlocking parts to immigration policy in the United States. So that's certainly going to be a consideration. All righty. Now, I, you know, it never occurred to me you could be impeached after you left office, but that's what they're going ahead with, with the Trump impeachment, partly, as I'm sure we've spoken about before, it's so that, you know, the the they're trying to sort of rule out the possibility of President Trump running again. Now, I would have thought that the Democrats and the Republicans both want that. The Republicans don't want to be disrupted the way, you know, it would be if uh, President Trump decided to run again. However, this impeachment is going to go ahead. What's the defence going to be? Because it's all about, you know, the the riot in the Capitol. That was certainly uh, part of it, that he was, uh, he, you know, he was uh, trying to um, get people to, to storm the Capitol. He was saying all sorts of things about you've got to turn up on January the 6th, you know, there's got to be this, that and the other happening, and then I will lead this march down there. Uh What's the defense? What What's going to happen? How will they say that, no, that's not what the president was talking about? Well, there's there's a couple of different things that that could go on. You know, one of the defenses, of course, is that you can't impeach a president after he's left office. It hasn't been done. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, you know, what what is the purpose of that? Um you know, it's not exactly like a statute of limitations argument in a, a criminal trial, but sort of in the same vein of, you know, it's over. Why are we doing this? It doesn't make any sense. The guy is not the president anymore. He, If you are concerned about him behaving in a certain way, he doesn't have the power to do that anymore. Um, the other argument that they might well make and some of what they've laid out already in some of the legal documents is sort of a, a First Amendment argument that Trump had the right to say, you know, give his opinions of what was going on in politics, what had gone on in the election, um, and that he, just like every other American citizen, is entitled to the protections of the Bill of Rights. Um, what some of his uh, former supporters and people in the party generally are concerned about might be that he's trying to relitigate this election one more time and trot out these highly debunked, totally untrue claims that the election was rigged against him and so on and sort of use this impeachment trial as a way to get one more bite of that apple. And, yeah. uh, you know, even Republicans are saying, don't don't go down that road. That's not a winner. OK, but that is from what we have heard about uh, the president's defense. So that's what he wants this to be part of. He wants this. The, the number one thing is as part of this defence is, you know, the, I was cheated out of the election and that's why all this sort of stuff happened. If he is then impeached, well, he's been impeached, if he is not, if he's found not guilty, which I think is the most likely outcome at the moment, is he able to say, well, there you go, I was found not guilty, my defence was that I was cheated out of it, therefore I was cheated out of the election. Is he going to be able to twist it that way, do you think? Well, I mean, I wouldn't put anything past 
the former president in terms of shaping a narrative to his own personal or political benefit. He's been he's been uh, repeatedly demonstrated as being quite capable in that regard. But I mean, if this is any question of people saying, "Uh oh, well, in that case, you know, um, President Biden ought to start packing it up because we screwed up the election. No, I don't I don't see that. The election has been certified. The administration is underway. And um, that chapter of history is closed. I mean, what matters about uh, conviction in a second, historically second impeachment uh, would be things like uh, this would prevent Trump from holding any office of honor, as they call it, uh, in the future. He couldn't run again. And uh, that is a big deal. Celeste Katz-Marston is our guest in Boston. Now, this happens every time, it seems, although it's worse now than it's ever been before. Uh, Every time that there's a terrible shooting, a mass shooting or something like that, the uh, number of firearm sales go up. And that's exactly what has happened not because there's been a mass shooting, but also after perhaps the, the raid on the Capitol. Now, I think one of the most amazing things about that storming of the Capitol was the lack of firearms from those, the, you know, the, the terrorists, if you want to call them that, um, that really, given the United States' history with firearms, it could have been a lot, lot worse I mean, yes, uh, you know, half a dozen people died. One woman was shot, but she was shot by the law enforcement officers. So um, that's the case, isn't it? I mean, were you surprised about that as well, the fact that there wasn't as much, you know, know, there was no firearms violence really in that, that, um, that revolt, that insurrection? I mean, the whole the whole insurrection was sort of shocking, but sort of not. We've been in a time of really high political tensions. People were incited. You have people buying into uh, really radical uh, conspiracy theories, um, also just buying into uh, plain old white nationalism, racism, xenophobia, all these kinds of things. So uh, to sort of say, well, it could have been worse. Yeah, technically, but it was pretty bad. And um, looking at what uh, you're talking about in terms of firearm sales, yeah, that there is sort of traditionally um, a spike in gun sales at certain points in sort of political life. Uh, and sometimes when a Democratic president takes office, people have a perception that a Democratic administration will be sort of a gun grabber administration that will take away people's right uh, to to own uh, firearms. Um, but this is something that's been uh, you know, very, very marked uh, in January. Uh, part of that is because of um, Joe Biden saying that he does support some uh, stronger regulation of guns, although, you know, he's talked about assault weapons. He hasn't talked about taking away everybody's guns in this country, which would would never go over, I don't think. Um, but in 2020, there was also, you know, increases in in uh, gun purchases and so on. There was a lot of civil unrest. People were in a pandemic lockdown. Uh, some people had concerns about whether the police could defend them. They saw uh, protests. Uh, some of those protests got violent, you know, in the places that they lived. And people wanted to have some measure of protection, including a lot of people who were buying guns for the first time. The um, 80% spike, the second highest one-month total on record. I mean, that's scary to me. I mean, who, for the people, you know, people buying guns for the first time, that's scary in a way. But the people that already have them, do they think that by having more guns they'll be safer? 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting. One of the interesting things that I've seen about this issue is that uh, people were buying guns as sort of uh, part of the generalized trend of hoarding that came along with the pandemic. I mean, we talked about people hoarding toilet paper and and, uh, household necessities and things like that. There is some, uh, you know, there is some suggestion that people were hoarding guns as part of this general sense of we need to stock up on everything because we're going to be locked away in our homes sort of helpless for a long time. Uh, So that part of it is kind of interesting. But uh, yeah, the idea that people felt that they needed to stock up on guns, uh, you know, at least partially in response to a pandemic lockdown, uh, certainly not something I've seen in in my lifetime, but we haven't uh, seen a pandemic like this, uh, you know, in 100 years or so. And not even like that. I mean, people say that, of course, because of the Spanish flu pandemic in the early 20s, late uh, teens, early 20s. But I don't think it was anywhere near as uh, severe as this. I'm not talking about the number of deaths. Obviously, there are a lot more deaths, but just the way that people's lives were disrupted. Um, How difficult is it to buy a gun in Boston, in Massachusetts? If you wanted to walk into a sporting goods store or a gun store and buy one, is it difficult? Well, I have to be honest with you. I have not tried to buy a gun in Massachusetts, but uh, I think the you know, some of the northeastern states have stronger restrictions on on firearms purchases and permitting, uh, licensing, waiting periods, background checks than uh, some of our other states in the in the south and in the west. So uh, again, I haven't really tested them out, but um, I had you know obviously I'm I'm from New York. I had looked into um, done some research on restrictions on uh, gun permitting in New York City and looked at some of the legal cases surrounding that for my reporting. And it was very difficult, very difficult to get a permit for a handgun. Now, mm-hmm. other kinds of guns, rifles, shotguns, uh, because people use those for for hunting and so like, you know, things like that, uh, probably less difficult to acquire those. All right. Finally, this morning, I don't know what this tells us about where we're going, but um, yeah, but they have them in Australia as well. Uh, you see them on uh, you know, ads on the back of buses and taxis and all that sort of stuff, and that is where you can just ring up and someone will bring some alcohol round to your house. You don't have to go to the bottle-o, as we call them, the bottle shop or the liquor store or supermarket, wherever you sell them, they will bring them to your door, and that's been around for a long time. But it's obviously a lucrative thing in uh, the US, in Boston in particular, because Uber is jumping in by buying a company that's been doing it. What's the story? Yeah, so uh, Uber, the you know the uh, taxi service, uh, car service, is buying a company based in Boston. The company is called Drizzly, and they're spending one point one billion dollars supposedly to buy this company. Um, that deal is going to come up uh, in the first half of the year. So Drizzly has been around in Boston for quite a long time, since about 2013, I think. Um, and Uber's um, Uber's revenues have gone down because people just aren't traveling as much for the pandemic. But their food delivery service has uh, done a pretty brisk business, as you can imagine. People trying to get food, live some sort of uh, you know yeah. semblance of normal life without going anywhere. So um, now they are adding uh, Drizzly which is a service that uh, gives them the technology to add alcohol sales to uh, to their platform. And they're sort of betting that, you know, maybe this will become a way of life or that they can capitalize on it while it is. So this it appears to me that Uber, Uber Eats, of course, everywhere, 
They are trying to sort of corner the market by buying up. They bought one of them, Postmates. They tried to buy Grubhub, and that failed. But it sounds like they are trying to, you know, monopolise the market. I know there are quite a few of these things, but if you're the biggest and best known, it's easier to buy up the uh, competition and close them down, isn't it? Yeah. uh, You know, there are competing services, uh, in New York City, for example, I, you know, we had Uber, I used Lyft, uh, there was one called Via, which was like a sort of a van sharing service. But Uber has become pretty dominant in the market. And yeah, they're, they have they have the money, they have the revenue to try to corner the market, as you say, although there are certainly questions about how Uber does business and the protections that they offer their employees, nice. uh, and the pay that they offer them. So, you know, not not completely uh uh rental car and shining armor type of thing mm. but uh they are they are seeing a moment and they are uh taking uh taking advantage of that but the interesting thing about this drizzly thing is drizzly doesn't actually deliver drizzly just makes sure that whoever has the alcohol can deliver it for you they're kind of the middle person yeah exactly it's a it's a technology it is not itself a fleet of cars that come and bring beers or bottles of wine to your house they're just they just have the infrastructure and the technology to make this happen for people who want to engage in those sales so uber is sort of buying into that technology uh to use their fleet of drivers they already have an uber eats uh platform that can deliver food from a restaurant so now they are just adding the boost to that so I don't know why they can't develop it themselves rather than spend a billion dollars buying someone else's. Well, that takes money. It takes time. If there's already uh, somebody who has experienced this market and examined it and uh, worked out uh, some of the bugs and so on, you know, they are saving themselves some reinvention of the wheel, I think, by, right. by buying a company that's already established. All righty. Celeste, we'll talk again in a couple of weeks. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Celeste Katz, Marston in New York City. Oh, no, Boston, Massachusetts.